Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Acton, Acton, and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and with Martin Davidson today. And Martin is a great old mate of mine, filmmaker, documentary maker, writer, used to be the commissioning editor at BBC Two in the glory days of history, commissioned Simon Sharma, commissioned Lawrence Reese and Nazis, a warning from evil. And of course, has been on the podcast before because we've talked to Martin about um, his grandfather, his Gestapo SS grandfather. Um, um, in a previous episode, Martin, great to get you back on. We've been we've been talking about this for quite a long time, and actually, we first discussed this subject um, of your latest book, "Mobilizing Hate," back when we were beetling about the South Tyrol. I, I mean, interestingly, although, though you're sort of uh, um, sort of British and, and Scottish to your boots, you do have this German family, um, this German half half of you. You know, your mother is German. Your grandfather was as we talked about before in the ss you can speak german you've made tv programs for zdf the the tv channel and stuff so you are quite sort of immersed in in the whole german side of the war particularly the nazis well it's 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 a really unusual perspective i mean i'm not the only person has it there are lots of uh as people of of, you know shared heritage or, or whatever but but from a personal point of view it was always really interesting um to be able to if you like uh, 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 switch focus and ask yourself the question that had com- quite deep personal salience. All right, then what, what happens when you put your mind into empathy mode and go, all right, I'm a German. It's 1937. I know I was born in, I don't know, 1920. So I'm, I'm coming up to my twenties and the war has started. What on earth goes through your mind? It was so easy growing up in Britain to be, to, to project yourself into, you know, via commando books and movies and all the rest of it, you know, how, what kind of spitfire pilot would you have been how would you have been you know as a number two on a destroyer handing a cup of cocoa to the captain or a uh, uh, you know it, it, it was it was it was it was it was easy to do and 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 the question there always was well what would it have been like to have done it the german part of you goes what would it have taken for you not to have done it and that's a much much harder question and i have i've i wouldn't enjoys the wrong word but I've, I've sort of set myself the task on many occasions to go all right then while this is all happening what's happening on the other side i, I was put in mind of this the other day well, and it's the eternal question isn't it is how could the whole nation have fallen for this codswallop you know th- this absolutely vile bile that was coming out of the nazis the anti-semitism the kind of you know the, the post-truth for want of a modern phrase i mean how could they all fall of it and how much were they all collaborators into this bigger ideology and that and that's the thing isn't it and and, and what you've charted in, and what we were talking about in the car that time and what you've subsequently kind of published in your book which came out at the very end of last year i think is exactly you, you know you're you're really the first person to kind of properly answer this question or, or attempt to answer this question is how it happened and why it happened and where what was it about about what the nazis were doing that that, that sucked so many people in and, and it's it's just completely fascinating and i, I you know 
I don't want to kind of sort of do a complete spoiler alert before we've chatted. But the long and short of it is, there was no plan at all, was there? There was no plan for the Holocaust. This, this, it was, it was escalation by degrees, wasn't it? I mean, we call it sort of organic growth today. I mean, but that's basically what it was, wasn't it? Well, what I yes, the the the, the point the point of the book was to take a step further from the book I wrote ten years ago about my SS uh, grandfather, which, if you like, was a micro story. So that was one thread in the in the story of the Third Reich from which I tried to extrapolate a bigger a bigger story. So if this guy is in any way typical of the movement around him, what does that tell you? It was like a, a keyhole, and I was looking through it, seeing the bigger room behind it. This story is the other way around, and I set myself the challenge of okay, start with the, the biggest possible question you can ask about the whole the, 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 you know the period 1919 to 1945, very much including the Second World War. The really big, 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 big question um, uh, uh, that, that kind of dwarfs all the others, which is what what was it all for? What was it about? Why did it why did it um, uh, uh, have this all-consuming power to? To, to 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 foster and inculcate and incubate this 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 project at the absolute core of it which was ended up being what we now call the Holocaust. It was never just ancillary. It was never just noises off. It was never just something that that, that, that had had an indirect relationship with the war. From the German point of view, every single motive they had about what, the, what it was that fighting this war involved had the final solution as one of its corollaries. The two went hand in glove to the most extraordinary degree. So it is a legitimate subject for a World War II podcast to ask, well, what, what kind of war was it these Germans thought they were fighting um yeah. and i i i i asked, and how much do ordinary germans understand it in those terms of course ma- massively um and 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 it it it, it remains it's, it's one of those questions that's obviously so imponderable and so huge and so and so anxiety making i mean it's just it's just such a horrible uh, uh, rabbit hole to go down that i mean it started off life as i made two films as you, you kind enough to mention in the intro to for, for zdf actually uh, 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 they did a 10-part series that went out a couple of years ago and it was it was the birth rise fall and aftermath of the third reich from a very you know from a german point of view um and i was asked would i like to make the two films on the holocaust episodes seven and eight uh, one film was called the gates of hell and the other was called Vernichtung, you know, annihilation. And it was really interesting. So the, the German producers of this series had thought it very, very important that they had somebody who wasn't fully German make these two films in order to give it a sort of an international perspective. So it wouldn't just be not that they would ever, ever soft sell the Holocaust. That, 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 that does not happen in Germany. They, German media are, are in no way involved in any, any level with trying to find a yes but to explain it away. They just aren't. But it was, this, it was an extra sort of prophylactic, if you like. It was just get, get a, foreign, uh, a, a, a foreign filmmaker to, 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 to come to bear. And I, so I sat down and I've made from all the films that you and I made together. I, I commissioned lots of uh, Ben McIntyre or his uh, uh, projects. So I, I did. I've done. I've done. You know, numbers of, over the years, numbers of films about World War Two and also the Third Reich. Without myself being a World War Two specialist historian, I, I defer to those of you who, who who are. But I'm fascinated by it. Always have been. And I sort of gave myself a clean sheet. I sort of said, look, I've got I've got buckets of sort of second order information and knowledge and familiarity swilling around in my head. I you know I know about Kristallnacht. I know I know I know you know I. I I know about the death camps. I know about 
Heinrich Himmler and Eichmann, and I know about all the forlorn attempts that uh, were made to draw the attention of the West and the Allies to what was going on. I sort of know all that, and I've watched Schindler's List and 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 and, and been moved to distraction by all of it. But okay, let's do two things I wanted to do, both with the films I made, but also in a wider sense, the book, because the book covers that I wrote covers a much wider, uh, the TV series, the ZDF series, I was simply uh, interested in the years 42 to 44. Um, but I wanted to widen it to, to rather than just, just do that particular chapter. So I'm now thinking, okay, I want to do two things with this book, as much for my own satisfaction as for possibly any readers, which is to, to re-engage with the narrative sequence of events in, in, in an explanatory way, rather than just these are the sort of the waypoints on the story. They start off with triumph of the will and screaming crowds and Stukas diving over Poland. And then the next thing you know, it's Anne Frank's diary and uh, 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 the camps being liberated, Bergen Belt and the rest. I wanted to go uh, back over and go, all right, do I really have a picture, a pattern in my head of what led to what, given the idea I think is right. There was no master plan. There never was. Um, but secondly, I wanted to do one more than that. And this is where I took a This is a, the tendentious part of the book. I absolutely admit that. But I thought I'm going to have a go at trying to wrestle with, is there a mindset? Is there is there a kind of psychology, an ideology, a combination of the two that once grasped will give you the first clue as to what it was that drove, and, and, and I use the word mobilized, because I like it as an active verb. This isn't passive. It didn't, I mean, this thing you've got to get right, which is the Holocaust may not have been the product of a master plan. Um, and, and if you like, when you talked about it developing organically, has its own momentum, but it's not passive. It doesn't run away with itself. It doesn't, it doesn't create itself self people do I no mean, no no it's it's absolutely the root of, of of nazi ideology right from the outset and, and all this stuff is sort of swirling around with the you, you know with um the tula society and all this other stuff and the, and, and let's face it you know the, there is pretty rampant anti-semitism in europe throughout the 19th century and into the start of the 20th century and and, and what the nazis are doing are grabbing onto something that's already there and using it as a sort of as a cause of of germany's plight in 1918 I mean, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And part of that ideology meets psychology was the idea that not only were you to think it, you had to do it. And the thinking and the doing were, uh, uh, became a, a, an ide fix, a core principle of not, that you would, you, one was not sufficient without the other. Doing it without thinking was just pogroms. Thinking without doing was just intellectual abstraction. And Hitler and Himmler and all his kind of inner circle were absolutely committed to finding one Rosenberg form or another. And all those yeah. Axman and all these types. Yeah, so that they're the, the, absolutely up into it, aren't they? Yeah, so the thinking and the doing are one and the same, and they well, one feeds into the other and is validated by the other. So that's what. But it's, undermining all this is is not just Germany's defeat in 1918. It is this belief that the world is changing, and that that other nations and other other almost sort of species of humans are threatening the world order. And the world order is one in which the white Northern European should be the top dog. The, the, that, that is under threat. And therefore, there's this grim task that they've got to do, because clearly the answer is to exterminate or get rid of all the Jews. And it's a terrible job and a terrible burden, but someone's got to do it so that Germany and the rest of Northern Europe can emerge exultant in the future um, and future generations won't have this terrible hardship and burden placed upon them. I mean, it's, it's, it's the worrying thing about 
about it, of course, is, is, in when we look at it today, is that we have that same rhetoric starting to creep in all over again. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 I mean, the, the, thing that, the, thing that's so, the thing that's so terrifying uh, about it all is that, yes, there are all these currents that already existed across, across Western nations in the years before the First World War, Britain included. But, my, my, I mean, the, the, the irony was that if you were to point to a country in Europe that was least likely to be at the, uh, uh, at the cutting edge of anti-Semitism and, and, and pillorying and, and persecuting uh, Jews, it would have been Germany. I mean, it was Russia and France. France that were that were the the, the obvious contenders. If you well, put of a, course, if, if Dreyfus you put a, Affair and all the rest. That's of it. right. If you put a Geiger counter, uh, 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 that's those are the countries where it would have crackled the, the the loudest. But what happens in Germany after the war, I think, is and it's not an original observation. We all know that 1918, 1919 holds the key. That none of this would have happened had it not been for the First World War. And the point I try to explore is is it's it's not just about losing a war. It's what happens when you lose a world war. And I think it's very very different. This is. Why it's not the true the Congress of Vienna or, 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 or you, know, the, you know big wars have been lost before, but the men in the top hats all gather in gilded rooms and redraw some maps and a, a few fingers get uh, get knuckles get wrapped. And the Americans particularly are, are, have a huge part in the in this. This settlement. Yes, well, they, they, but, but, with Roy Wilson there yeah. and everything in the. Well, what I, what I what I what what I what I try and do is recreate then what I call the. Um, again, it's not an original phrase, but this idea of there's a big bang, some, some a universe. Is, is is born of of, of uh, nothing nothing that that universe creates in the sort of heat and light of 1919 in Germany is inevitable, but without it it wouldn't have happened. Something happens, and uh, uh, and the way I try to uh, personify it is 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 the idea that there are four cosmic shocks that happen to Germany and very specifically Germany, one after the other. I call them the four horsemen of the German apocalypse, and that one is the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, which of course suits the Germans all too well. That's why they put Lenin on the train because well. Uh, Russia is going to pull out of the war and leave the Eastern Empire free for German exploitation, which happens. Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. I mean, the Germans are thrilled. So long as Bolshevism stays where uh, safely not safely um, immunized uh, in, in Russia and doesn't spread but of course it starts spreading and the one country to which it spreads the most rapidly is to Germany so it's talk about shooting yourself in the foot uh, the second of course is the the armistice and this this weird defeat that isn't a defeat so the, this idea that it's politicians that are thrown in the towel not the army not a shot fired in Germany so it becomes incredibly possible rather unlike completely unlike 1945 to hold on to this idea that this this is defeat it's a technical defeat it's not a real one then two days earlier than that was the declaration of the weimar republic which is the antithesis of the of, of the kaiser's the kaiser's imperial Reich. this is a, 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 a you know it's a liberal dem democratic republic if and if you're an ultra right nationalist the, 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 of, of the sort of which there was a big thwarted minority in germany all the wrong people are in charge and they're, they're governing in all the wrong way i mean democracy is the, is, is leadership by the weakest it triggers all of that middle class panic huge middle class panic and also there's middle class panic that the, the, the even the the, 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 the SPD the, the, the sort of centre left party that's notionally uh, done best out of all of this new arrangement is simply is simply a portal for the communists and the, and the the, 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 the the middle class terror in Germany about communist incursion of the Spartacist mutinies and uprisings in Munich and Kiel and Berlin um, um, is 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 very real and of course then the fourth and most climactic of them all is the Treaty of Versailles which just 
serves to underline the fact that all the fears that had started to form with the first three of these disasters are not only real, but they are going to provide the context for the entire scope of the German future. So this is inscribed into the very fabric of what Germany is. You are a defeated nation and that is now your identity. You exist on the world stage as the paradigm example of a nation defeated in every single sense in which it matters. All of this is gelling, but it takes on... The, the point I make here is, is, yes, of course, nobody likes to lose a war. Nobody especially likes to lose a world war. And it's perfectly true that if, if, if Britain or France or America had lost, it would have been just as existentially nightmarish. You know, we, we you know, consider, consider the repercussions when Britain, you know, Britain is, 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 thumped in the, is thumped in the face after the Boer War. I mean, it, 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 it triggers all sorts of fantastic self-questioning about what's happened to the nation that this could possibly have been allowed to happen. Well, multiply that by 100. So... Uh, this is a war that was always going to have fantastic existential victims in whoever whoever lost. But what happens in Germany is 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 very very strange, and I, I, I do think, and I, I know that, that there is a sense in which more more contemporary historians will find the focusing on Hitler a bit old-fashioned. There is this idea that Hitler is definitely a key, obviously a key part of the story, but there's 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 more troubling and and and, and complicated things going on around it. But I still think okay. In terms of the book I'm trying to write, I'm trying to write for the general reader who has not read hundreds and hundreds of these books. And I think... Yes, because the bottom line is, 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 is the Nazis don't happen. They don't get into power in 1933 if you don't have Hitler. You, you, they're not in the war in 1945 if you don't have Hitler. Well, I, 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 think it, I do think it's as, as brutally simple as no Hitler, no Nazi party, no Nazi party, no Third Reich, no Third Reich. Well, because, no because there is a National Socialist, there's, there's a, the German Workers' Party and all the rest of it before Hitler comes along. You know, Hitler, Hitler comes along and doesn't necessarily think he's going to be the leader and then realises he's actually really rather good at doing talks and everyone's sort of scuttling around him. And suddenly thinks, I, actually, it's me that's the chosen one after all. You know, I am the, I am the Messiah. And he becomes this cult figure. But, but, but the Nazi party is, has no chance of developing into a mainstream party without Hitler. It just doesn't, because, you know, it doesn't, it hasn't got, there's, there's no one in the cohort, you know, I mean, what are we talking about? I mean, we're, you know, we're talking about Rosenberg, we're talking about Hess and people like that. These guys simply don't have the charisma and the clout, or frankly, the intelligence to be able to kind of pull that off. So it is all about Hitler. And suddenly, there's, and, and there's absolutely no way the National Socialists are going to get into power in January 1933 without Hitler. It's just not going to happen. E even with the brilliant re rhetoric of, of someone like Goering and his extreme intelligence. But, but you, but you, and, and then the, the, the other part of the equation, it still takes him 10 years. The whole of Germany, his, his great calculation is he's, he's, he's lost on the lunatic fringe, the outer fringes of German politics for a decade. Um, and he's happy. He's happy. He will not dilute or compromise his message in order to make himself more amenable to mainstream German opinion. He will yeah, hover on the outskirts in the hope that one day Germany will move towards him. And that is indeed what happens. And, and they do. And that's that's the Wall Street crash and the, and, and the, the collapse of Weimar and, and all the rest of it. And, uh, and even then, in January 1933, it's not a slam dunk by any stretch of the imagination. And, and it's actually sort of politicking and, and, and Machiavellian, Machiavellian sort of shifting between senior politicians that actually opens the door to the Nazi takeover in, in January 1933. So, uh, uh, and, and the, the tragedy is, is, is for Germany and for the rest of the world is that Hitler takes power just on the cusp of the economy starting to turn. But one of the legacies of the fact that he has never had to 
if you like, adulterate or dilute his message. So you have this no. paradox that, that what Hitler is, 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 is the world's most bitter anti-democrat who, thanks to Goebbels, um, uh, the brilliant strategy, strategist uh, of his propaganda minister, um, who understands the mechanisms of democracy better than anyone. Nobody, nobody campaigns as cleverly as Hitler does. And the re reward for that is six million Germans vote for Hitler in 1933 who never did before. It's crucial. And that gives him that gives him that, you know, real lever, a real handhold on, on, on power. Uh, the, the extreme right, conservative right make the terrible familiar mistake of thinking they can turn him into their puppet. Uh, we'll use yeah, him yeah, to yeah. rouse the masses, but we'll master him. And then we know what happens. The legacy for what happens next is is, is less to do with the, the actual mechanism by which power is finally achieved um, over those months of late 32 into January 33 and then through to the summer to August uh, uh, 34 by which when Hindenburg dies and Hitler becomes Fuhrer rather than just Chancellor that it's less about that and it's more about um, I, I think the real legacy is that it takes Hitler five years between 1918 and 1923 to fix in his head once and for all how he thinks the world works how history works past, present and future and those are E-Day fix it's interesting that, that, that he has no interest in turning the clock back to a Germany that existed before the First World War. He's not interested in restoring that, that restoring the, so he's not just a reactionary. I'm not interested in the Kaiser, I'm not interested in the Prussian Junkers, but nor is he interested in the politics of the future as represented by Bolshevism. No interest in that either. And what he creates is a, is, 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 is a realization that he has to, in order to secure for Germany, the, to Thomas Weber, the, the, the great historian of the early Hitler, says this great phrase, he says that Hitler is, is absolutely preoccupied by one question, one question alone, which is by what means do I secure for Germany permanent security for all time? Feet of 1918 can never happen again, nor anything like it. Well, part of that question is, is obviously is political. You've got to have a strong army and you've, you've, got, to, you've got to turn... Uh, from the nadir of German fortunes in 1918, not only do you have to claw your way back up to, 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 to the status quo, but you then have to invert it and climb a mountain to German supremacy, the like of which Germany has never seen before. So it's, a, it's double hubris that Hitler is, is beginning to imagine uh, as the project for himself. I'm not just going to restore German prestige. I'm going to dominate the world. You know, can you imagine thinking that in 1918? Yeah, and at the heart of this is going to be uh, Germania and there's going to be and i know all that comes a little bit later but but even in in that stage he's he's thinking in terms of this this great hub and it's going to be full of of northern europeans and aryans and and uh, and racially pure to safeguard it and turn it into this thousand year reich but the the interesting thing that's going through his mind is 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 like all all of north you know the the the, the great the great powers as we call them they're all very interested in empire and they're all very interested in the science of empire so all of them the british the french the belgians are all very interested in the question about what it what is it about being British or Belgian or or, or French that, that that qualified them to run, to have these huge colonies these huge empires? Well, the Germans look at that and go, well, we we belong to the same we're the same biomass. We're all white white educated. We're the top of the the racial summit as they chose to understand it at the time. But it hasn't worked for us. It hasn't worked for us. So we've been we've been we're we're, we're, we're not only do we not have an empire. What, what what few colonies we've had have been taken away from us by the, the very same people who are people like us. So the racial theory that Hitler comes up with. So it's obviously not just a question of being white, Aryan, North European, because there's something wrong, because if that was all it was, they'd have an empire and they don't. 
And I think what you then get is this is the this is the the, the anti-Semitism thing. There's a, what I call racism plus. There is a sense in which the thing that is holding Germany back, the only possible explanation they're prepared to be satisfied by, is that there was an agency at work in the world that has done Germany down, and it wasn't just America, France, and Britain. Um, and I think what you get from uh, uh, Hitler is this sense that the, the two great forces that dominate the modern world post 1918, the the modern world of the 20th century are international finance and ideology in the form of Bolshevism. Ism is the first big ism that looks to take over the world. And you then have uh, uh, over and against that the encroaching impact of international finance, neither of which observe or respect normal political borders. Both work by sort of empathy. You, you can't, you can, they're invisible. You can't see them. Well, what happens in Germany is that the, the pressures of Bolshevism, the fear they have is that that is going to undermine the working class. It's going to turn the B, and Germany's proletarian working class is huge. And what happens with international finance is that will demoralize the middle class. So it's a twin-pronged war on, on Germany. And what Hitler starts to realize is he puts a name to it. It's this, the, the, his great lesson from the First World War in his head is that the First World War has taught him all that he now needs to know about the, the role of the Jews in the world. It's that way around. And he has a triple this is this is these yeah. are the people that yeah. are undermining and, and the reason i call it racism plus is there's something going on here over and above the much more familiar british french belgian idea that that white civilized europeans are somehow at the top of the heap and everyone brown and black is somehow lower down what it, what it, what, it, what it identifies is that there are three ways in which if you're an anti-Semite, um, um, you're more than just a racist. You're more than just somebody who finds J Jewish life distasteful. I mean, clearly you do. Um, but you, you ascribe to it. And, there are th and, and the, the, I think the original observation I've tried to make in the book is you have to understand that in th under three headings. One is there's the whole language, which the whole of Europe is familiar with, with the Jew, the eternal Jew. And that is a language that's hundreds of hundreds of years old, with particular force after Martin Luther. And it's a language of disgust and suspicion and it gets tied up with all sorts of horrible associations that start to be made in the mind between between what it is to be Jewish and all sorts of all sorts of uh, uh, characteristics and activities that are, are, are the objects of, dis of disgust and loathing. Um, but the second is Judaism itself. And it's, it seems odd that, that, that who, who could get angry about J Jewish religion. But all the way through this period, um, the, the, there's a brilliant historian called Alan Confino who makes the point that the German, uh, the German war against the Jews is as much against their religious symbols. It is, you know, the, the Jewish rabbis are made to spit on sacred scrolls. Uh, uh, synagogues are desecrated. It's really, really important to the Germans that they, they, they express the full scope of their disgust and loathing for Jewish faith itself. Um, and also that's tied up with the idea that this isn't just a war of religion, although a lot of people consider the Jews guilty of having killed Christ. And there's a, there's a, obviously there's a Christianity thing going on there, but it is, it is a war of civilizations that what the Jews are accused of doing is having undermined the high point of European civilization. They're, 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 they're withering it from within and the but the third definition over and above these two is the most important i think it's world jury and those three phrases i think are different and they coalesce and they have different audiences they have different and world jury is the idea that there is an agency in the world that takes on the characteristics of its host population and 
subverts it and turns it to its own interest without ever declaring itself. No uniforms, no flags, no gunships, but safely and surely they are now the, the, the puppet masters who are pulling the wires of all the systems that matter, systems of the economy, systems of ideology, systems of media, all of which are the most powerful systems that characterize the modern world and they're in Jewish hands and their motive, their, 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 their plan is at, at Germany's cost. It's, 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 and that is where, that's where this thing starts. And that will be the triple-headed uh, uh, idea that what stands in the way of Germany achieving permanent security for itself for all time. But secondly, the, the second goal, the, the big goal, the hubris goal for Germany is, is it's, it's not about ruling the world. I don't think they looked at it that way, but it is owning the century. So in the same way, I mean, we talk about the 20th century being the American century. So we know what that means. Did America rule the world? No, but it, it dominated. So in the same way, the 19th century was the British century. The 18th century was the French century. There was the Spanish century, the Portuguese, the Dutch. So they've each, you know, we've seen a sequence of European nations kind of colour. Sort of, and if you're Nazis, it's now your yes, time. Yes, it's going to be the German century. In fact, German millennium. I mean, the Romans. Millennium, the thousand-year right. Martin, at this point, we're going to, we're, we're, we're we we need to take a very quick break. Um, but when we come back, well, there's, there's more on this because it's just utterly fascinating. Well, welcome back. And uh, I, it's James Holland here with Martin Davison. And we're talking about mobilizing hate, the kind of origins of how the Nazis managed to get this extraordinary grip on Basically, the entire nation, or very, very, very large portion of the uh, of the German nation, and get them, bend them to the Nazi will, and 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 to this absolutely abhorrent ideology. So that's so we were just talking before the break, Martin, about the three terms of of how Hitler and the Nazis kind of framed their anti-Semitism and and how they fear, you know, how they they saw the threat of the Jew, the eternal Jew, Judaism, and world Jewry. These these three titles but how do they get everyone on board in the 1930s because I, I you know I, I mean obviously you go you go right up to the end of the war and the entire holocaust and the escalation and the big meetings at von Zee, et cetera et cetera but the thing that i i just find so fascinating is how they go from comparatively small percentage albeit six million people voting for them in 19 january 1933 to total buy-in pretty much by 1939 or is it total buy-in well it, it it's it... The thing is, it's it's the level of buy-in that they need. So, uh, it's just, well, I I mean, I think I think what happens is 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 again the, the the way the way I look at it is 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 that what Hitler and the early Nazis do is they grasp onto the two. I think the two very powerful threads of new ways of doing politics that are very kind of fresh and invigorating and uh, energizing at this period and they fuse them uniquely they fuse them one is biopolitics and the other is geopolitics so geopolitics is a new way of understanding the way in which nations compete with one another to achieve supremacy and biopolitics is the study increasingly preoccupation of the of the advanced western nations which is 
uh, uh, tied up with all those moral panics about are we strong enough biologically as a people to deserve and to keep our imperial superiority over the rest of the world. I mean, the, all these huge panics, which you'll have in Britain all through the 30s as well, which is that that, that we're all weak and degenerate, and 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 we we've 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 allowed our our, our ethnic stock to to be devalued. But what Hitler does is he fuses those, so biopolitics and geopolitics, and 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 the role played in each by the Jews is absolutely crucial. So the Jews become uh, in his in his demented mind uh, uh, the idea that the, the the natural vitality of the German people is being sapped and poisoned and toxified by by, by and, and it's all that imagery that appalling imagery of the bacillus and viruses and parasites and all that disgusting stuff but in geopolitics it's also it's matched by the sense that German has always felt ready to be enclosed east and west it's it's geographical position in the world makes it particularly vulnerable well because it's in the heart of Europe and it's vulnerable and it hasn't got access to the world's oceans in the way that you know France has or America or, or, or and, and the worry there is that that isn't just a military thing that isn't just because you've got Russia in one direction and France and Britain in the other it's also a, a, a cultural thing that you have in uh, what they are starting to call Judeo Bolshevism this vice like grip on Germany's future from the west in the terms of money Wall Street, stockbrokers, the stock market, and from the east in terms of Bolshevism. So it it's 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 it takes on it takes on a, a new life. Now, in terms of how this this then gets spread around the rest of the population, I mean that is an incredibly interesting question because through the twenties. It's absolutely not true to say that the great majority of Germans are just itching for the chance to build Auschwitz. I mean, they absolutely are not. Up till this point, the Jewish population in Germany has been one of the most assimilated in Europe. Um, And the Nazis set themselves the target of disentangling that, reversing that, cancelling that. And a lot of this, uh, I mean, there's huge numbers of factors, but the one I chose to focus on was Goebbels. And Goebbels really, really, really understands how you dial it up, but how you dial it down. And what I've tried to try to track is the birth, the genesis of this idea, this idea of, you know, and it is an idea. How resilient is it as an idea when it gets turned into becoming the core principle for a political movement in the in the in the years of the twenties? Um, and then how, after the acquisition of power in 1933, does it get turned into this sort of the the framework for for a, a regime? And the answer is it's a combination uh, of things. One of the first things that Goebbels does uh, on, on on the acquisition of power in January, uh, the end of January 1933, is he 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 knows that what what he wants to do is to how do you turn Germany's Jewish population, which is about 600,000 people, spread all over the country, but with particular pockets in the big cities? Uh, many of them have um, are actually have converted to types of Christianity. They're, they're, they're doubly not visible, as it were. He realizes he makes the calculation that the two the two ways in which a minority of people in a, in a nation uh, 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 how they relate to the the bigger the majorities through through. Two ways. Uh, how do you do it? You do it through sex and you do it through money. You do it by intermarriage and you do it by businesses. And he decides to target both. So the way that you turn Germany's Jews into pariahs is to identify and target both. So the first thing he does, April the 1st, you know, a few weeks after power, is the, the infamous economic boycott. And we've seen the footage. There's, there's not a documentary about the Third Reich that doesn't have that image, those, the, that black and white archive of SA thugs standing in front of shops painting stars of David on shop windows. 
Um, it's a failure. It, it, I mean, the optics are powerful, but it's a failure because most Germans just think, what on earth is this? I've been going to this department store, this this agricultural supplier for decades, and he's he's great. It's it's brilliant. So he realizes that, that okay, the economy, we're going to have to wait. We're going to have to rework out how we attack the Jewish uh, economic position within Germany. And his plan eventually is, well, the way you do it is you steal their businesses. You don't try and boycott them. You just expropriate them. Um but the second, the second uh, attack is sex, and that starts off with um, this, the, 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 well, you know, the infamous Der Sturmer, that appalling pornographic rag that Julius Streicher publishes, with endless pornographic caricatures on its pages, lascivious, lecherous, fat-lipped Jewish caricature ogres preying on blonde German maidens, um, and that is sets the 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 tone for what then uh, is, is a campaign that you see uh, replicated throughout Germany, which are called these pillory marches, and that is usually in the in the in the in the back backward provinces. Uh, uh, anyone, any German who is in a relationship with a Jewish person, either man, woman, woman, man, um, uh, and we've seen the photographs. They're rounded up, have placards, guilty placards put around the neck, and they're frog marched the length and breadth of a town, being spat at and jeered, and then usually the man, if it's the man, uh, uh, taken off, beaten up. If not, if not worse, so and that then that then becomes the Nazi uh, regime starts to think, all oh, right, that that is working. There is that's a very easy button to press, sort of salacious, prurient, sexual disgust, um, and that then gets incorporated into this a bigger sort of more almost metaphysical thing, which is the idea of race shame, the the German blood, the whole the 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 the, the, the sexual presence of of alien alien blood within the German body politic has to be yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it, and, it, it's corrupting it and all and, and they call it the honor it's it's the, it's blood honor it's the laws for German honor honor and shame and it's this weird perverted chivalric idea which they've incorporated they've taken from America the idea the idea that the the national bloodline is something sacred and has to be protected from from pollution um and what i try and do is is is, is look in the book and in, in, in two particular chapters to look at the ways in which these campaigns this whole dialogue this whole sort of ways of framing the jewish question so that whole new constituencies of people are german mothers uh german academics uh, well uh, i think the academics is really really interesting because you you know i mean from, from a distance you just think God, surely they should have known better. But actually, you know, you call it the treason of the intellectuals, don't you? But it's 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 this idea that all these all these academics are are wading in and supporting it. The power of intellectual orthodoxy and the authority that lies behind it from from uh, from the academic and and also remember in Germany, the academic is highly highly respected. The traffic goes both ways because. What it gives is the peripheral academic a chance to wade into subjects of national importance, um, accruing to yourself a tremendous sense of, you know, you're a figurehead of thought, you're a thought leader in the regime, rather than just being an ivory tower, irrelevant professor. Um, but on the other hand, what it gives the regime is, well, if all these anthropologists and theologians and uh, 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 sociologists, if they're all piling in, lending more and more credibility to what a lot of Germans would consider, this is just thugs, this is, this is all unpleasant and vulgar. These are the worst people who who 
who, who are beating up Jews because that's who they are. Well, those middle class, the, the, you know, the bourgeois in Germany who, have, who are not reading Der Sturmer, they, they hate all that, but they're kind of going, well, if, 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 if the professor of theology at whatever university is starting to, uh, or the historian is starting to explain in, in, very, in very kind of a rational, apparently rational manner, what it was that happened to human history three years ago when, when the human race broke into two branches, the, 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 the Jewish and the Aryan. Well, this is, this is, and this explains the Thirty Years' War and explains, it explains the, the, the rise of, the, of Bismarck's Reich and explains Napoleon. Well, this is, you know, they, they, it's very difficult in, in, in a culture of tremendous academic and religious deference to ignore that. And I think what, what's, so, what's so invidious about what Goebbels oversees in Germany is that there are uh, uh, so many different idioms being adapted for different constituencies. So there's a, a famous attempt, um, as I say, to recruit German mothers into, look, there is no more duty sacred, no more sacred duty for a German woman than, than to have the right kind of healthy babies. And that has a corollary. What do we all think about unhealthy babies? Unhealthy defined not just as physically, and but also culturally. Before you know where you are, you've got the euthanasia projects yeah. and all the rest of it. Yes, exactly. And also what you have is, is that sense of this is an adult conversation I'm having with you. It is one of the privileges of being in Germany that you're being, you're being recruited into this conversation because I'm not going to patronise you by pretending you don't understand this because I, 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 I look to you to, you know, I know there is no more, there's nothing more sacred imperative in your life than, than your children and your family. Also what Goebbels invents, and I think this does have modern resonance, he invents, and it's brilliant, uh, 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 two types of idiom for the, for the newspapers. He invents a whole media discourse. One is he invents the whole idea of the decent, hardworking, silent majority family whose instincts will no longer tolerate being insulted by by Jewish intellectuals who who prey on on German naivety and and their tolerance they prey on them um, and the second thing he does is what I call it's the raw rawhide whiplash of contempt I mean nobody writes savage contempt for people that have pissed Goebbels off better than Goebbels and both those idioms sort of outraged loathing and the decent the decent you know that the, the I will speak on your behalf these people think they can carry on insulting you and they think you're too stupid to know well that that ends here I'm drawing a line under it and we all know who they are but also Martin I mean you know people do even in a cynical age like today, people people believe what their politicians saying. You know, you have Trump Trump standing up saying this is a kangaroo court, this is ridiculous. You know, I'm the true defender of democracy, and people believe him. Gargantuan amounts of evidence to the contrary. There's a demagoguery at work, and there is a kind of cult-like relationship between uh, uh, between a constituency and, and a leader, which in, in, by by 1935 1936 is vast in Germany. But 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 also the the other thing is is that he's able to bring a certain degree of economic prosperity to Germany there's more jobs there's you know there's the military's brought back in um suddenly your average german from having been browbeaten in the 19 the, the late teens and the 1920s can actually stand proud again and and although hitler is not for restoring um imperial germany under any uh, any shape or form he very him and goebbels very cleverly do play on to those ideals of 
imperial Germany of militarism and, and, you know, we're the best at military and this is what we do and standing straight and lots of leather and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, you can absolutely see with the jack boots of, of 1890, just as you can see them in the, in the Nazi boots of, of, of 1937. Playing with all that, and, and presumably there's a large portion of, of, of German citizens and civilians who sort of go, well, there's lots about the Nazis that I don't really like, and the whole kind of anti-Semitism thing kind of, you know, I think is a bit of a, you know, it's a bit distasteful. But on the other hand, you know, I've got a job now, and, you know, we're, we're a proud nation once more, and we've got our military back, and everything seems to be working, and then now there's also bonds and aircraft going overhead and all the rest of it, and so therefore I'm prepared to sweep the kind of less savoury things under the under the table a little bit. Is there a bit of that? That's a kind view. I mean, it's, it's absolutely right, in essence, that the, the, the social contract you Hitler, think I'm being too generous? Well, uh, his, well, see if you agree with this. This is this. Is, uh, I'll, try, I'll try this out on you. Uh, the way I look at it is, yes, there is definitely a social contract. Uh, it's a brilliant German historian called Goetz Ali who who has written uh, a book called Hitler's Benefactors, and it's the idea that there is a real quid pro quo going on here, and there is a real rhetoric at the heart of what the Nazis offer. That you know, those six million people that voted for Hitler who had never had before. Well, they didn't. As I say, they certainly didn't. The two things they had never had in mind was we're going to have we're going to re fight World War One. They absolutely didn't want to do that. And they certainly didn't want to, we're going to build death camps for, for, for our Jewish neighbours. But what they did want was um, economic security and also a sense that, 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 that j- 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 they would be privileged and they would be a priority. You know, it is the left behind. I mean, he was brilliant. It was it was Goebbels who identified that a major constituency were the um, uh, 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 dairy, uh, d- dairy farmers. Um, it was to do with the price of fertiliser. Um, you know, he absolutely understood these are crucial, crucial issues. So those are the ones you have to focus on. Um, and then what you get in the, in the early Nazi period is the introduction of social welfare, medical insurance, pension reform, uh, the idea of holidays, paid holidays, um, uh, uh, all the accoutrement, of, because he knows... And, 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 and all the kids are getting healthy holidays and going camping and, and coming fit and strong and all the rest of it and, and, and spending time outside and kind of admiring mountains and going swimming in lakes. You know, so there's... there's, there's for, for your average German punter, there's a lot to like. Uh, definitely. Definitely. And, and there's a real, I always, I always like the, this, the anecdote I always use. I remember my German great grandmother, who was a Prussian matriarch of, made of sort of iron and flint. Um, and I remember knowing her, and I remember her, her, her actually said, yes, I remember her once saying to me, oh, yes, if only Hitler had died in 1939. And what she meant by that was that, that there's that great Frederick Douglass phrase, um, uh, we people want the ocean, just not its mighty roar. And that what the Germans had by 1939 was, well, we've got all the riffraff off the streets and a lot of people have been a bit humbled who were getting a bit big for their boots. Um, and there's, there's a spring in our step and the world takes us seriously and we put behind us a lot of the things that, that, were, that were, you know, generated kind of German inferiority complex. But when, but when it comes to, all right, and now, now we're going to go and refight World War One, they were terrified. I mean, there's, just, no, there's that famous story of... Well, no, no one wanted it at all. No one wanted it. I mean, no one wanted the war. I mean, even Goering didn't want well, there's the great moment when Goebbels uh, he organises this great military march up up the up the the, the great east west axis in Berlin, and nobody and he noticed nobody's cheering, and he realised, Christ, we've completely miscalculated this. These people do not want to refight World War World War One, which is Hitler's great aim. One of the great things he when he's sitting in Landsberg prison writing Mein Kampf, uh, the whole thing is we are going to we, you know this is just this is just an interval. It's what you know De Gaulle famously called it's the 
It's the Thirty Years. It's the Thirty Years War. There, is, there are no two World War Wars. It's the Thirty Years War with this break, um, and 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 Germans and Germans don't want that. But the only thing I'd say against that, that that, that, that yes, that, that, that this is still the idea that what is happening with the persecution of the unwanted within Germany, principal of which are the Jews, although obviously other populations included the handicapped, uh, uh, gypsies, Roma, Sinti. I mean, they, 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 this is not just restricted to the Jews, but the Jews, German. Jewish population is at the top of the list. What there's also going on there, there is, 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 is the opportunity to kind of, the kind of sort of slightly relish the, the, the fact that, 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 these, that these people are being, are being humbled and made to, uh, uh, their lives are being made really miserable and there are people who get off on it. So one of the key ideas for the whole book, it starts off with this idea of malevolence. And what I mean by malevolence is we, we have this idea that the, that the Holocaust was this, was, this was dull, this was dull efficient Germans applying dull efficient murderous nightmare yeah, to but the population. Yeah, but it's much more than that, isn't well, it? Well, it's, I, th- I and, and, and there's a Really interesting, really interesting article. You know, it's little bureaucrats like like Eichmann and all the rest of well, it. Well, there, there is a there is a sense there is a sense in which um, along the way you get to laugh and spit at them. And there's the, the, the point the, the the line I use is there's a, in November nineteen November the eighth nineteen forty two Hitler is giving his annual this is the sacred night it's the anniversary of the beer hall putsch November the eighth uh, sacred the most sacred date in the Nazi calendar and he would gather around him uh, uh, in a big Munich beer hall the the, the loyalist of the loyal, the old Alterkämpfer, the old fighters, and he—it's it's a two-hour speech, and it, it takes the form of a kind of State of the Union, and he offers this microscopic, granular account, of, and this is just before Stalingrad. This is on the on this is on the eve of Stalingrad, so it is still just about possible, uh, given the situation in the Soviet Union, to hang on to the idea that German victory has not yet completely been snatched from German hands. So the Stalingrad nightmare hasn't is about to happen, but hasn't yet. And he does this survey of, you know, from Norway to North Africa to the Eastern Front. His command of detail is unparalleled. His confidence, he's digging deep into his resolve and he has seen it all. It's all a tribute to his own omniscience. And then right in the middle, uh, there's a paragraph about the Jews. And he has this phrase, it's always struck me. The first time I heard it 20 years ago, it always struck me as being a sort of incredibly telling phrase. And he says, yes, and the Jews, they're not laughing now. They're not laughing now. And it's sort of an incredible phrase. And it's the idea that the reason they're not laughing now was that they were laughing because they thought they'd pulled one over on us. And it took me to call their bluff, to humiliate them, turn the tables, now look at them, not so, not wipe the smile off their face. And it's that mixture. That, and there is a sort of vindictiveness, a schadenfreude, a sadism, a sense of the righteous revenge against people who lorded it over us. And they're never going to do that again. So yeah, you have this moment in 1942, but but actually, Martin, we, we've still been just been talking about the peace years. And the other thing I wanted to just 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 say, I, I, and, I, and what we'll do is we'll we'll wrap this episode up and then come back on and, and talk about the war years um, next time. But the other thing, of course, is is just the process of repetition of this this stuff. And and you know, one of the things I always thought was so fascinating was was that when you go to your Whitaker's Almanac, you can find out all sorts of incredible statistics about, about the world in the 1930s. And one of the things you, you learn is, is that Germany is not very automotive and they don't have many, you know, and they have 22 and a half million pigs and not very many sheep and things like that. But you also discover how many radios they've got. Uh, and, and there are more radios per 
per person in Germany than any other country in the entire world, including the United States by the summer of 1939. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. And what they've done is they've pioneered the, the Deutsche Kleinempfänger, the, the German little radio, uh, which I think first comes in in 1934 or 35 or something. And I've actually got one here in my, um, in my office and it's, it's, it's sort of about eight inches by four inches by four inches of Bakelite. And of course, you know, in those, you know, in those days, the 1930s, you know, a radio is still a radio set is still an aspirational thing. It's usually made out of walnut or some lovely wood and it's expensive and it's aspirational. What the Germans realize, what the Nazis realize, what Goebbels realized is that actually you can make um radio is pretty much affordable for everybody and even those who can't there's no escape because they set them up in restaurants in public squares in in the in the stairwells of apartment blocks and this bill just gets pumped out all the time and it's not just hitler ranting and raving with spittle flying or anything like that you know there's marching bands there's light music there's comedy hours there's all this sort of stuff but the overall message is always the same you know, Germans are brilliant. They're fantastic. They're the master race. Jews are bad. Bolsheviks are bad. Uh, and, and it starts to seep in. And again, I, you know, I go back to sort of contemporary times. If you say things enough, people will believe it. And they do. You know, we, 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 the majority, despite the, the protests in 2003, the majority of people accepted that there was a real threat from Iraq, for example. Um, um, you know, the rhetoric of Trump and all the rest of it, you know, the people will believe it if you said enough. And this is one of Goebbels' great mantra is repeat, repeat, repeat. And it's terrifying. I mean, it's absolutely terrifying. But I think we should leave it there. I think we should leave it there for now. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I think the, the last thing I'd just say before, I think that's a great idea because I, I genuinely believe it's one of the points I try to make most strongly in the book is you cannot understand World War II without understanding the final solution just as you cannot understand the final solution if you don't understand the war the two go hand in glove um, and, 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 and again the last thing I'd say what, this is the moment when two phrases get used so the Germans invent the phrase Judeo-Bolshevik in order to really make Jews feel utterly alien at every level at the same time in 1942 in America they invent the phrase Judeo-Christian in order to do the reverse to make the solidarity between uh, Jews and Christians all the stronger in order to combat latent anti-Semitism in America and Britain. Yeah, so I, 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 I think I would, I would love to come back and talk about what happens with all of this in the war because that's, that's when it erupts. Well, Martin, that's, that's fascinating. For anyone who didn't catch it, it's called Mobilising Hate, the story of Hitler's final solution. It's just utterly fascinating. And, and you get... You know, there's been so many books about the Holocaust, and of course, the details of the Holocaust are also grim. But I think I've got to admit, you know, when I've been sort of trying to work out why it was that German troops in the in the summer, late late autumn, you know, late September 1944, could line up a whole load of women and children and shoot them in a cemetery in a mountain in Italy, it's not good enough to just say, "But they're all evil Nazi bastards." You have to understand why they could do that. What what had happened in the war to enable them to do that? And it's exactly the same with the Holocaust. What is it? about the Nazis and about the escalation of time and events that leads them to the final solution. And it's just such a fascinating topic um, and one we will delve into next time. But Martin, thank you. That was absolutely thank amazing. Thank you, James. Love talking to you. Cheerio for now.